0: Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So, tune into the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm losing my voice, so oh, no. I'll participate as I can. But I will probably be a, okay. a smaller voice on this episode.
3: Oh, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind. Uh, we we want to talk today to step a, a little bit out of the news cycle, uh, but talk about you know a, a story that, that we read recently. USA Today, partnering with uh, Arizona Republic, um, published a sort of big thing in which they, I don't know what they did. They used computers.
2: They used computers. So what they did was they used some pretty impressive computer technology. You can read a whole long article in USA Today about how it worked to basically look at thousands of thousands of bills that have been introduced over the past eight years and look in at— In state legislatures. In state legislatures. So not here in Congress, but out across the country. And what they did is they found about 10,000 bills that were essentially copies of model legislation. This is legislation that think tanks, that industry groups write up, and then they pass out to busy state legislators saying, hey, it'd be a good idea if you sponsor this for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, They found about two-thirds of those came from either conservative groups or industry groups. There were some from liberal groups as well. And 2,000 of them passed. 2,000 of them have become laws that are on the books in the states that we all live in. And one of the things that—we've known for a while that this model legislation exists. We've known about things like ALEC. Um, We've known about—you know, I see this in the space I cover— a lot, the abortion policy space that think tanks here in d c will write model legislation to restrict abortion that states can use. But this has really been the first big documenting of how widespread this model legislation is and how frequently it passed, and often how little legislators know about it. Um, One of the things they did is they talked to state legislators who have sponsored a lot of this model legislation, who were often unaware of where it was coming from, who had been co-sponsors, who didn't fully understand what the legislation was doing, because it often comes with a very nice, good-sounding title that actually isn't describing what it is doing. So I think, to me, you know, I think the reason this is important and interesting to talk about is it's really documenting— how different groups are having influence in state legislatures, how widespread this practice is, And then I think it's interesting to think about, like, well, what would we do differently if we didn't want this to happen? Um, USA Today had some interesting ideas about how to fix it. I have some different ideas about how to fix it. But if we think this is a problem, I I think it's interesting to talk about, like, what would be the policies you'd enact to have less of this model legislation in our legislatures? I
4: want to talk a little bit first about, like, the methodology here because it's not—this is— The way that they did this, like the kind of robustness of rating bills on a 1 to 100 scale like is novel but the use of anti plagiarism technology to detect like similarities in language there's like there is a political science literature on this you know they like got one of the people who's developed one of those algorithms to to review it and so what that ends up depending on is the literal similarity of language and that's i think an important thing to talk about is like that's a particular spot in the process where you know it's not just people kind of going to confabs and coming away with oh this is a good idea that the state had that we should Stopped. It's you know that may also be happening. That may be what gets it on their radar to begin with. Um, but it's using the literal text of the bill, which raises a lot of questions. There's an assumption packed into this that using the language of the bill is more likely to be directly good for the interest groups that are proposing it than it is for the people of the state. Which I think is a little bit uninterrogated in pieces like this, and you know speaks to I think bigger questions about the. Way that state legislatures, in particular, make laws. Wait,
3: right, well, so <laughs> I, I think to you know to try to understand, like, wh- like why is this potentially bad, right? Like, what is the concern, right? And the idea is that we have a image in our minds of the kind of engaged legislator, right? And the engaged legislator can obviously be influenced by things that are happening in other states, right? Like you might go to a a conference and meet legislators from other states. They tell you about your ideas. You're like, oh, that does sound like a good idea. And you come back home and you consult with your colleagues and you do something. Having the common language, right, it's not that it's bad for a bill in Ohio to have the exact same legislative text as a bill in Georgia, but it shows... That the legislators in Ohio, right, it is, it is proof that the legislators in Ohio did not do original thinking in this, right? Because if you did, if you had convergent evolution in which people who share similar values and have a similar sense of what kinds of things are big problems, they would just naturally come up with slightly different solutions, right? Whereas when you're when you're copying and pasting, it shows that you're not putting in the work, I mean, a separate question is like, is that actually bad, right? And I feel like the USA Today article, it goes through a lot of pieces of model legislation that are quite bad.
2: Well, and it, it is so – like the one that really jumped out at me is they write about this model legislation called the Asbestos Transparency right. Act, which like – I don't know if you read the title of that and you're like a busy state legislature, you're probably like transparency around asbestos seems fine. You know, however, as they write in the USA Today investigation, it didn't help people exposed to asbestos. It was written by corporations who wanted to make harder for victims to recoup money. So I think that is like the— biggest problem of uninterrogated thinking and lawmaking is going off these these titles. And then there's a lot of like legalese and like it's a little complicated. But
3: I guess right. that's, that's my question about this though, right? Like one presumption of this is that somehow poor innocent state legislators have been duped into signing on to this asbestos transparency bill unawares through this problematic process of routine legislating and that if we had, you know, our real citizen legislators doing their committee hearings, this wouldn't happen. And like, I don't think that that's right. Like in my experience, it's a limited experience, but I have spoken to Republican members of state legislators, different places, Um, and in my experience, they are hardcore ideologues who love ALEC. Because they think really smart people work really hard there to come up with ideas to help advance freedom and, you know, things that they want. They, they, They very sincerely, they have a considered opinion that, you know, just like, Republicans up on Capitol Hill, they really believe that like a big problem in a democracy is that people might overtax the rich and hurt long-term growth. They think that a big problem in states is that greedy trial lawyers will get these like big verdicts and it hurts business. And often like they are business owners themselves, right? Small businessmen often go into Republican Party politics (laughs) like they want to make it difficult. Like the reason they keep passing bills that make it hard for people who have been damaged by big corporations is that like that's what they want. Like that is their goal, right? It's not confusion or something like that, right? And, and pointing to the – Model legislation, you know, it could be like a good rhetorical tactic, right? Because like Jimmy over there in the state senate, he's like telling you he represents the people, but really he's just copying and pasting bills from industry groups. But like, yeah, like he really is. Like like Jimmy loves industry groups. That's why he's copying and pasting these bills.
4: And like there has been – the policy research on this has found pretty consistently that like ideologically conservative members of state legislatures are especially likely to be introducing model legislation in general and conservative model legislation from from ALEC in particular. One of the important differences here and something that the USA Today data set like did break out, but their story wasn't always as, you know, the focus on kind of individual cases can obscure this a little bit, but there is a big difference between a bill getting introduced and a bill getting passed. And, you know, a lot of bills do not that get, int- get introduced don't get passed. So some of this is, you know, there are, I think one study found that like the overwhelming majority of state legislators, and this is fairly old data at this point, but the overwhelming majority of state legislators didn't introduce any model legislation at all, like the, so, which implies that this is kind of a vanguard effort from a particular aLEC-affiliated state of legislators. But there are also studies that moderate. Model legislation bills, like or bills that get coded as moderate, get passed a little more often than either liberal or conservative model legislation, which like raises some questions about how these things are being coded because pro-industry stuff can often seem moderate. Industry groups had the highest success rate in the USA Today analysis, like over a quarter of their bills got uh, mm-hmm. that they introduced got passed, um, but. It makes it clear that it's a little bit more complicated than just the ideological diffusion of ALEC, even though that may very well be what's incentivizing kind of the worst offenders, if you will, in state legislators. Like there probably is one person in every state legislature who can be reliably counted on to introduce whatever the hot conservative bills are that session.
2: I mean, I think uh, my best hunch is like it's a mix of what Matt is saying, but I don't want to paint Republican state legislators with too broad – a brush. I think, you know, w- when you look at the structure of state legislature, in a lot of places, this is a part-time job. In a lot of places, they're meeting every other year. Um, one of the reasons—when I worked at Politico, um, I was covering the state rollout of Obamacare. And one of the things I loved was state legislators are incredibly reachable. Like, often their home phone number is on their website. You call, like their kids are picking up. A lot of people are not doing this as a full-time Job, So I think one of the things that is true about being a state legislator that is not true about being a member of Congress is you're often much more on your own in making these decisions. And you have a decent amount of power. You know, you can sponsor bills that could become state law. And if you're working in a government where there's unified control of government, they might have a better shot at passing than something here— In Congress. So I would, you know, from everything I know reporting on state government, my best guess is there's a mix of people like what Matt is talking about who, you know, can use this as a cover. And like when USA Today calls them, they'll be like, I had no idea that this like was bad for asbestos victims. And then there's a mix of people who are working in the legislature part time. They have another job. You know, they're committing what they can to this and legitimately just relying on this model legislation. And neither situation is is great, but they might make you think a little bit differently about how you would remedy this prol- proliferation of model legislation if some people are using it as cover and some people are, you know, legitimately just relying on this because it's there. Well,
3: let, Let's take a break and then and then come to this because yes. I, I, I think this is a little less distinct than Sarah's making it out to
5: be. Oh. Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
3: Okay, so... I look at this, people don't like this, and it seems it seems obvious to me what the solution is. That like all kinds of stuff that people like and that they think is gonna make politicians less out of touch and captured, like making them be part-time, giving them term limits, and like all that stuff is counterproductive. And the fix to this is that being a state legislator should be a very well-compensated full-time job. You should make like 150, 200 grand a year, you should get a big staff. There should be no term limits. There should be um, not gerrymandering, right? Like, there should be, like, good, solid redistricting reform. So, like, being a state legislature should be really good. Like, you should have a great life as a state legislature where you're earning a good salary. You got a lot of staff to boss around, but it should be hard to keep your job because you have to run in competitive elections. So, you have the resources to, like, try to really discern what voters want, but then you've got to like really hustle and go do it. Um most of our states are not structured like that. And in particular though, like the states that Republicans govern are not like that, right? Like I so I, I do think that this is this is bound up that like the more conservative states are the ones that go very far in the other direction of almost no staff, low salaries, part-time work, uh, strict term limits, so people revolve in and out, and they are deliberately trying to create state governments right. it is that are, that are run by these that model legislatures. It is Texas's
2: legislature only meets every other year, right? right? Like for a state as big as Texas, that's bananas, right? But
3: so, like the idea, like by design, is to create a Texas state legislature that cannot govern. The state and, like, must rely on model bills. So,
4: I mean, I think it's worth disaggregating the kind of—in the policy sci research, this is kind of referred to as the professionalism of the legislature, right? right? But it's worth disaggregating that into, like, the particular things because there's a less strong consensus on this point. There definitely is some really suggestive research that uh, reductions in staff pay lead to lower staffing levels, which lead to less capacity, which lead to passing more model bills. But there's also some kind of interesting counterindicative evidence. Like, if you think about it, the things that are going to result in having this kind of citizen-legislator model are, A, as Matt was saying, you know, very— few full-time paid staff and fewer, fewer staff generally and especially fewer full-year staff uh, because the state legislature only meets for part of the year, be a shorter sl- legislative session so that legislators and staff can, like, go make money elsewhere and see the term limit stuff. And as far as staff professionalism is concerned, there, you know, there is— some evidence that that reducing staff does increase model bills, but there's also evidence that if you have more staff during the legislative session, you're less likely to introduce model bills. But if you have more permanent staff, you're more likely to introduce model bills. Mm -hmm. And the you know theorization there is that if you have political professionals who are working full time they're probably developing contacts in issue networks in ideological networks they're like looking at what other states are doing and going gee that might be a good idea mm-hmm. let's port that over um i think that this is for the record one of the things that none of the neither the usa today nor any of the policy research really gets into is like how often are bills that what that are written as original in one s- by a state legislator somewhere getting, you know, ported over elsewhere. Like right. that, that seems like it would be a useful point of comparison if this is just like the mutation of ideas across state legislatures or whether this is something that is actively being pushed right. by an like, interest Like One group. thing
2: like that falls in that realm that I cover is this idea of a Medicaid buy-in. And that's one where it very organically has gone from like someone in Nevada had the idea now New Mexico and Colorado are looking at it. There was never really like you know, the the model Medicaid buy-in right. legislation. It just kind of bounced around because people read about it from other states. I mean, one thing I'm curious about, with your theory of how this would be fixed, Matt, if all these people are ideologues, like, what does it matter if they become permanent? I mean, I guess in your theory of this, the elections become... I guess I don't see how the elections become more competitive because I feel like the big roadblock this all runs up against is people just, like, not caring that much about local government. No, I mean, I,
3: I totally agree. But I mean, I just think this is all like when you look at like what is the the substance of like Republican state legislating, right? In in addition to the policy stuff, like on process stuff, right? Like they push restrictions on the franchise and, and things like that. Like they're trying to create unaccountable Legislatures. And so that's why they legislate like they're unaccountable. But I don't even want to get too into Republicans, blah, blah, blah. Cause like a good question all this raises is if you envision an issue area in which you like to see state governments going and doing things like Medicaid expansion, or, you know, I'm interested in some of the um state-level housing reform bills that are that are coming in some different states, right? Now what one would really want in a situation like that is for some experts, right? With with the kind of thing that think tanks do where you blend subject matter expertise on the policy with some expert analysis of the politics and things like that and to craft legislation that is really, really good and shop it around to other states, right? Because there's a bunch of interesting ideas percolating in west on housing, on West Coast state legislatures. There's nothing doing in East Coast state legislatures. And it would be great if there was like a centralized legislative clearinghouse that could look at what's happening on the West Coast, distill best practices from there, and then create something that people in New Jersey and Connecticut and New York could go use as... Models, right. right? Like, and the same thing with Medicaid expansion, right? Like, most a normal state legislator who gets interested in a Medicaid buy-in is, of course, not going to be fanatically committed to specific details of how that works. It's that they've heard that Medicaid is good. They've heard this could be a cost-effective way to do things, and they could use like but they an often, expert, right. and they
2: often don't copy. have the health policy expertise to figure out like how do I set the premiums for the right. buy-in. But I mean, even if
4: right, like I mean, did, we've definitely right? like, seen what happens when people have to write bills very quickly and don't necessarily understand the policy like you know when you're talking about a very short state legislative term like congress does this all the time they'll be like they'll put themselves up against a deadline and then they'll come out with a 600-page bill and something will be in there that leadership denies is in there because they haven't been able to read the bill the whole way through like
3: but also it's like why reinvent the wheel right it's like if if some state puts forward like a pay transparency bill and they pass it and they're really excited. But then it turns out in practice that there's loopholes in it and it's not really working that well. And so then they take another bite at the apple. And in their second rev like they really nail it. Like right. other states should copy that bill, right? I mean it's like like this is the thing is that like obviously local conditions differ and like the right policy for Maine might not be the right policy for California. But local conditions don't differ that much and certainly not on every topic. If you look
2: at like a space like paid leave, for example, you see states learning from each other and like even like states and cities like New York does something and now Washington State is doing something. California has its own proposal. I think the big key thing the USA Today investigation points out that is the core problem here is not actually knowing where the legislation is coming from. Like when you look at something like Medicaid buy-in or paid leave – those groups are really happy to say, like, yeah, here's our model legislation, yeah. like, we're the paid leave campaign, and, like, here's our bill, and we'll do briefings with you legislatures. With this asbestos stuff, like, the right. asbestos industry isn't like, hey, we're we're sponsoring this asbestos transparency act because they know that's going to raise some red flags. So I, the, the remedy that USA Today suggests—I'm not sure if this is not better—news article— is requiring you know people to essential requiring you know people who are writing this model legislation to register as lobbyists and, and right. making more clear who is actually backing and writing the legislation and that seems to be a place where you know certain people would be like yeah we're totally happy to abide by that i'm sure you know the americans united for life which kind of writes most of the model anti abortion legislation they'd be super happy to throw their names on their model legislation like they think it is a good idea to restrict abortion and, you know, want to get that out there, whereas a lot of industry groups might not be so enthusiastic about having that sort of transparency. So that seems like a smaller step, you know, short of making elections more competitive and these positions more robust, just letting people know where these ideas are coming from would do a lot to kind of level the playing field between these things that are coming up organically and these things that are coming up out of industry.
4: I have to say, having, like, read that piece of the USA Today package, like, they're not offering any evidence that it would things like if the fundamental problem here is as they framed it which is you know advocates and state legislators getting duped by these bills because they have nice titles like they're suggesting literally saying oh in somewhere in the footnotes you put who wrote the bill okay if you're not if you're not reading the asbestos transparency act closely enough to realize that it's not in fact about transparency you're not reading the footnotes to see who wrote the bill it seems like the there's a broader problem here that's connected to the professional a problem of just like a lot of Americans do not pay as much attention to their state legislatures as they you know, as proportionately maybe they should, given the effect of state legislatures on their lives versus the federal government. Right. Um, and that kind of that comes into, I think, the bigger structural dynamic of like the three-tiered American political system right now, which is that the Democratic coalition has a fighting chance at the federal government level in terms of the, the presidency and you know and at least occasionally Congress, has dominance of major cities and has extreme underrepresentation in state legislatures. And the reason that cities are relevant here is because even though, as Sarah mentioned, cities and states are, trying, are kind of cross-adopting some policies, one of the new waves of model legislation is preemption legislation of, like, states stopping cities from passing their own versions of things, which definitely impedes that cross-pollination process and also is often very explicitly, well, the big cities in our state are run by Democrats and we don't want any democratic policies anywhere. But
3: I mean, also, you know, in terms of, like, what's going on in state government, right— You can ask yourself, okay, is the big problem here that Republican state legislators may have copy and pasted an asbestos transparency bill that's actually just like? An industry giveaway? Or is the problem that the level of gerrymandering in Wisconsin and Michigan is such that even though Democrats have won the most votes in 2018 in 2012 and, you know, like in, you know, the years when Democrats did well nationally. In years when Democrats have done well nationally, they have won most of the votes for state legislature in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, and Wisconsin, which are, as you know, big swing states. And they've, Taken governorships in those states during those years, but they haven't secured majorities in the state legislature, even though they've gotten the most of the votes, right? And like that, to me, to say, well, you're going to fix governance problems there by like tweaking the disclosure rules around the bill. To me, it it seems obviously non-responsive, right? That like the problem is that if you can have a governing coalition that is immune to public opinion, like that's what undermines accountability to the public and that the actual practice of model legislating seems mostly unobjectionable to me, particularly given the actual resource constraints. Like I'm I'm for a big increase in professionalism, but given that it's not there, like this is the appropriate way for state legislatures to legislate. It's just that when you fail to serve the public interest, and then the public tries to turn you out of office, like you should actually lose power, but that's not what's happening.
2: Right. So I agree. I had the same skepticism when I originally read this USA Today solution. I was like, ugh, disclosure, like what is that gonna do? I think the reason I've come around to it a little bit more is it feels like like I don't I don't think anything is going to be like to be all end of the of this. And it seems like a better situation than where we are at now. Like if you had on this, if we stick with our asbestos example, if you had and like, I don't know if it's a footnote, I don't know if it's like in bright red letters at the very top of the bill, like you could implement this. And it, it, a lot of the details of this would depend like how, how effective, you know, some kind of disclosure would be. I think it's better than nothing, right? Like I mm-hmm. think it is like an actual reform that is... Maybe more passable than, like, you know, getting our legislature staffed up, meeting every year, you know, running as full-time positions, having that information more widely available and required. I, I don't think it's a full fix, but like, seems better than where we are where we are now, sure.
0: Yeah. I and mean, if it's
4: if it's an expressive, like, let's do a thing to demonstrate that this legislature, you know, cares about transparency and that model legislation is, like, you know, it, like to to put a, a stamp of moderate disapproval on the idea of model legislation, then sure, it's just like, if the fundamental problem here is an attention problem, and like, frankly, it's not exactly like there's a ban on posting model, like being public in acknowledging model legislation now, like ALEC posts lots of model legislation on its website. It's not like right. they're not upfront about that. So if this is fundamentally a problem of you know legislators don't figure out in time the influence model to you know to identify something or there isn't enough public attention being paid to what's actually in the bill to point out that it's being framed in a way that is inconsistent or like when there's one example in the USA today story of the mother of a disabled child who was extremely enthusiastic about a proposal to expand vouchers for disabled children. And then the state legislature kept passing more and more voucher bills. And she realized that, like, disability had been the tip of the spear by conservatives who were interested in vouchers rather than a particular accommodation for her kid. Like, that is not good. It's not clear that that's not something that you could address by, like, talking to the people who are pushing this bill and being like, so talk to me about why disability is so important to you, you know, like generally people who are pro-vouchers are not shy about being pro-vouchers. I think I'd be interested in seeing to what extent greater public awareness of this is its own disinfectant, Mm -hmm. actually, that, you know, maybe if the problem is people aren't paying enough attention to these bills and the answer is people paying attention to state bills generally rather than like... Actually, the way it works, which seems to incentivize the diffusion of model legislation, which is like a few legislatures pass a few particularly extreme innovative bills that get big national attention every year. And then you see a bunch of copycat bills pop up in state legislatures the next year. It doesn't seem like the, you know, that kind of let's all pay attention to this one bill that North Carolina is passing right now seems counterproductive for if the end goal is make sure that you are keeping eyes on what's happening in your state.
3: Although, so, I mean, one way in which I think talking about copycat bills and model legislation can be constructive. But in in this case, I think it's important to like not come up with a fix. But to just talk about it is that, you know, so much of politics is about symbolism and like group identity and group representation, right? And so then that means that like one question in politics, right, a a question that arises in the politics of an American state is like what is the symbolic meaning of the two different parties and of their two different coalitions and looking at the volume of – industry-sponsored model legislation and who co-sponsors it is I think a pretty good shorthand way of getting at an important reality, which is that like in an important way, the Wisconsin Republican Party as a matter of group identity is the people who are going to copy and paste industry legislation and pass it into law. Right, like it is true that they are the people who are more likely to own pickup trucks and that they are the people who are more likely to enjoy country music and various other signifiers of group identity, but like an important aspect with like tactile, tangible consequences for your life is that like they go to different conferences and they copy different bills and that's like a good way to dramatize that point, you know, if you are in a swing state and like trying to persuade people to not think of everything in like incredibly hazy culture war type terms. You know, what that means for like disclosure specifics, I don't know. But that's like, I, I think I think that's a big difference between how the people who like work professionally on model legislation understand what politics is about and how normal people understand it. Yeah. I mean, this this we should probably
4: take a break and then kind of come to the, the kind the uh, other piece that we of this that we wanted to get to in yes. terms of structural dominance.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Profit G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more because when you're an entrepreneur it's always important to look ahead at what's to come so tune into the future of entrepreneurship of Prof G Pod special sponsored by Mercury you can find it on the Prof G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts
3: so um a, a political scientist named Alexander Hertel Fernandez uh, coincidentally also published in Vox this week a, a good article based on his his book State Capture and this is about like how does conservatism work in state governments, right? And he's saying that a kind of easy, lazy stereotype you can have on the left is like, ah, these donors, these billionaires, like they put all this money into it and then they won the election. And, you know, they do put money into it and they try to win elections. But there's a question of like, how do you govern if you won an election, right? And his point is that this is a complicated organizing problem because there's lots of donors and they all want lots of things and you can only do so much stuff and some of it's unpopular. But, you know, I mean, legislators do unpopular things sometimes. Sometimes they take the hit for it and they say, we don't care. Sometimes they like smuggle it into the radar and somebody has to make these decisions, right? It's like, what actually do you do and when and how and how do those decisions get made? And progressives are often not that effective at this, right? So like when Phil Murphy took over as governor of New Jersey, after eight years, there had been a Democratic legislature and a Republican governor. And then a Democratic governor won, plus Democrats gained a couple seats in the state legislature. And there was not a well-organized system of here are the 15 bills that we have majority support for in the legislature that Governor Christie has been bottling up. And in particular, there wasn't a division between, okay here are nine bills that we think are super popular and we will pass in the election year. So Christie will veto them and we will dramatize them. And then here's our six bills that we like but they're not that popular. we're not going to talk about them, but then suddenly the day after we win, we're going to pass them all in two weeks, right? Like they just didn't have that kind of thing down and they have passed things. It of course makes a difference who wins the election, but they've also had like a lot of infighting between the new governor and the state senate president where they've argued about exactly how the minimum wage should go, exactly how taxes on the rich should change. And something that just happens in politics is that you fighting with members of your own party in a public way makes everybody look bad. Whereas you and the members of your own party like quickly passing a lot of bills and having like parties about how awesome these are going to be and you all stand shoulder to shoulder, like that makes you look good, right? And this is just a – you know, it's hard. It's a a question of hard organizing work. And his argument is that Republicans – it's not like they've like – solved the problem, that people disagree about things, but have developed more effective institutions for managing this.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that I would love to see this kind of analysis applied to states that have such a strong structural advantage that one-party government is basically a matter of course. Um, I mean, I guess New York is not a great example here because in New York, for various reasons, there wasn't effectively a Democratic governing majority until this session. Um, And of course, that is now... There is much more acrimony between the governor and the legislature than there—and the Democratic legislature than there typically is between an executive and the legislature in the same party for, like, Amazon reasons and just general ego reasons, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems to me that there's kind of a median legislator theory thing going on here Mm -hmm. where— There's going to be more of an interest if you have a really strong majority to kind of carve carve yourself out and hold yourself out as leverage. Like we would see this in this – we used to see this in the Senate a lot, right? During the Obamacare fight, there was a lot of I am the person through whom this has to go and therefore despite the fact that I am in my – a member of my party and not, like, leaving my party anytime soon, I'm still going to extract what I can out of this. And I wonder if that's also what's happening in state legislatures. And you're right. Like, it looks bad from a public perspective, but you can kind of understand why individual actors aren't going to be acting as rubber stamps and why they're going to be trying to extract what they can from their state party when they're in a position to do so.
2: I mean, I think one of the most interesting points that— this professor raises in his Vox article, is just the amount of organization that has happened on the right and how progressives, like, have not really been able to do the same sort of thing. So you have, you know, ALEC, which has kind of become this clearinghouse, this huge force in conservative politics. And progressives have never really created the same thing. You know, one of the things he notes in his article is that, you know, there are multiple kind of state policy type think tanks on the left that have never quite coalesced into, like, one behemoth that can help, like, coordinate things. It can help, like, think through, like, you know, what are the things you talk through going up to election year? Like, what are the things you can pass? Here's how to make it easy. Um, You know, I think one of the reasons you see all this model legislation that um, USA Today is writing about is because places like ALEC have made it so accessible and so easy for legislators to use in a way, you know—I mean, you see in the USA Today article— that there's just much less what they code as liberal legislation or legislation coming from, like, liberal-aligned think tanks, advocacy groups, and there is conservatives. I mean, one way you can read that is maybe liberal legislators, you know, are are more original and they just want to write their own legislation. Or one way you can read that is they just don't have access to those same— Resources that their conservative counterparts are are getting, which seems to be the case that's made here. Fewer liberals in state
4: legislatures than conservatives. There is a. It's like a cycle. It's like a chicken and egg
2: sort of situation. Right, right. But I do wonder
4: if you kind of if you divided by member of party, what those things would look like. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's not that no one has tried this, right? Like, there's there. Is and then got renamed a group that like explicitly considers itself the progressive equivalent to Alec. I think it's Alice. It was Alice, and oh, then it was Alice. Yes.
2: Yeah. Okay, um, well there's like this is getting
4: towards right, the Right, right. And like and and honestly, I was not aware that Six was still around because I hadn't heard of them in a few years. And I don't cover state stuff that much, but it's just it's it's such a ridiculously small organization compared to ALEC. And maybe that's a statement about, you know, priorities or just they have less corporate funding or whatever. But it's not like no one has tried. You know, Democrats, I think, when looking at things that Republicans do more effectively than they do, often go, this. Sh- no one has ever tried this. And usually the answer is that someone has tried it and it just hasn't really caught fire. But I think they,
3: in a certain sense, like actually are not trying, that they—or rather, they're not paying attention to what it is that ALEC actually does, right? Because what happens every time progressives try to do this is they're like, ah, we should have an organization that pushes progressive ideas at the state level. So we're like, okay, and you get some money in and you get some people and you get some articles. You're like, that would be a good idea because it because it would be a good idea. And so then it's like, okay, well, what are the progressive ideas? And then it turns out that there are a lot of people who consider themselves progressives and they agree with each other most of the time about most things. But on any particular thing, there's a range of opinions and they don't agree. And so then the organization comes up with nothing to push, right? And like what's interesting about ALEC is not that it pushes conservative policies, but that it has a mechanism for deciding which policies are the conservative policies and then to push them, right? And so he describes, there's essentially a a bidding dynamic, right? In which like, so okay, you want to be part of ALEC and then there are different issue areas. And so then you decide... Who gets to own which of those issue areas? And that's basically by putting up the most money in that subtopic. And so then your responsibility as an ALEC member is to push for ALEC stuff on all topics. So, you know, you are supporting the whole organization financially and then the agenda is being driven by specific things, right? So the equivalent of that, like on the left would be, you know, there's different things, but it's like you could pick. Like you could get your way on the minimum wage or you could get your way on the details of renewable electricity portfolio standards. Or you could get your way in whatever you wanted, but you would have to go all in on supporting the organization in exchange for getting your way on that one topic rather than fucking around with everybody else's stuff, right? But nobody wants to – do like I wouldn't want to do that. I mean
4: Where, like, the wild th- thing th- that's about like this ant- is that's kind of what like that's what we've seen in the knitting together of the democratic coalition into a progressive coalition at the like Super macro sense over the last couple of decades, right? Like, I'm sure we can all remember when the conventional wisdom was that, you know, Black and Latino Americans were opposed to gay marriage. And that, like, as that became a clear democratic priority and Latinos sorted themselves into the Democratic coalition, like, you see people – being more willing to adopt the views of the people around them on the issues they care less about. So it's not like there's no mechanism here. It's just that it's hard to institutionalize.
3: Well, and it's hard to get into something as granular as asbestos regulation as opposed to like broad themes, right? It's like super boring. It's not amenable to like making everybody feel good about themselves and be like, I'm the good guy here in politics who is taking a principled stand, right? It's like it's a different model, right? It's a it's a practical problem solving model. And you can see why a bunch of businessmen would like come up with it. Right? right. It's like like this is like a good smart solution to a difficult practical problem. And it's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, um guys who work in the public policy divisions of big business enterprises would be good at coming up with, and that a bunch of people who like Uh, are on the boards of do-gooder foundations or who run little activist groups would, like, not be really good at, like, a a practical problem-solving organizational function. And it's – like, that's a a tough one, you know? And, like, everybody would have to learn to be a little – a little bit less of, like, a progressive egomaniac and a little bit more of, like, a good team player. And, like, that's how you have a good team.
4: I mean, I think that it's also worth pointing out that the dynamics for ALEC and for industry groups are totally different, right? Like, like to the extent that, like, in the USA Today piece, a lot of these are – industry lobbies that have a few pieces of muddle legislation that are narrowly tailored, like, nobody is spending a lot of political capital on the Asbestos Transparency Act. There is, ve- like, I mean, okay, there, there might be some <laughs> legislator somewhere who has a large financial, like, or constituent stake in the asbestos industry. But, like, generally, that's the kind of thing that you pass because you see it as a small but good idea. You see it as, like, doing a favor to the coalition that you're a part of. It's not going to be your priority for the session. And so that is the thing that is harder to counter with the kind of, you know, a progressive Alec is fine, but what's the—it seems that the more—that the lower-hanging fruit is What are the ideas from alternatives to industry groups Mm -hmm. that are kind of these small, probably technocratic, probably not something that people are going to be feeling good about or spending a lot of political capital on, but that are things that are fairly easy to adopt across states that legislators might not have thought of, but once presented to them, will say that is a good idea. Right. Like,
2: they strike me as the things that would be very easy to accrue co-sponsors on. Like, the big hurdle would just be getting the main sponsor. But then, like, some asbestos, you know, legislation comes across your desk, and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll toss my name on that. I mean, but we even—I don't know. I feel like we see this play out in Congress, too, where you look at, like— when I look at senators signing on to the Sanders Medicare for All, and I think some of them don't actually understand that it requires
1: eliminating private
2: insurance. And they have massive staffs, like they have nice big offices where they have a health policy staffer. So it is, uh, I mean, it's a challenging problem to actually get people to read the legislation that they are signing on to, especially when like Even I see evidence like when it's a big, more key issue like Medicare for all. But then like you think of something like an Asbestos Transparency Act for a state legislator. Like that's a tough, tough. I think those are the ones that are most insidious because they're ones that are just going to fly below the radar and not get much attention. But And that's the exact thing that makes it easy for an industry group to kind of like slide in there with their legislation and and get it sponsored and get it passed.
3: But here's another thing that I think makes this— challenging left and right is that I, I think there's an asymmetry as to how the ideological coalitions relate to federalism. If I was a, a state legislature, Slater, in uh, uh, Rhode Island and I was of a progressive mentality, I would really want the United States Congress to like tax the rich and tax big multinational corporations more heavily. And as a backbencher, I might be inclin- As a backbencher in the state legislature, I might be inclined to take the position that Rhode Island should tax the rich and should tax big corporations more to signify my solidarity with progressive economic views and build uh, support for my future congressional campaign or something like that. But if I was the actual governor of Rhode Island. Right. I would actually have a significant concern that if Rhode Island's taxes got higher than Massachusetts or Connecticut, that we're talking about a small state that does not have like an incredible there's no like Silicon Valley in Rhode Island, you know, and that they really do need in a practical way to like cater to state business interests. And There will be a conflict, I think, perennially inside the Rhode Island Democratic Party between backbench members who are essentially position-taking and they're reflecting their view of national politics, which is that taxing the rich is good, and Democratic governors, right? Because you have right now Gina Raimondo, the, the governor there. She's sort of an outlier, moderate in Democratic politics. But I don't think that's a coincidence. It's that if you actually had her job, even if you had fairly left wing instincts you would find yourself taking graymondo's kinds of cautious positions about the practical need for business development in Rhode Island and you could have that even more in environmental regulations right like you don't want to drive industry just into neighboring states when you know that's not even going to like address climate change, right? But when you push it up at the federal level, it's easier. Whereas I don't think conservatives have that same level of like split mentality where you might favor deregulating in Texas but wouldn't in in the Congress, right? It's actually hard to think, you know, in a sort of obvious copycat way. Like New York and California have latitude to do things that not every blue state necessarily would have.
4: Yeah, I mean- what this suggests to me largely is just the effectiveness that large corporate actors being very explicit about where they are moving has had like it seems to me that what's driven the conversation about state competition which is definitely a thing like uh, some of the model legislation research has shown that states are much more likely to adopt each other's economic policies than social policies because there is this sense of oh if we don't retain a good business environment you know if we don't keep up with like you know, Jones State. Um, <laughs> there's probably a better way to put that. Um, then you know, then we'll lose all of our all of our, you know, small businesses. It's it's less that it's less that they're like looking at you know data and seeing, oh gee, there are fewer small businesses here than like corporations, which larger corporations that have, you know, can put things in multiple states and are making active decisions about where they're building their next facility, are being very open about their requirements. And This is not the world in which we live, but it would be interesting to think counterfactually about a world where the force motivating a democratic coalition in the same way would be concerns about a younger, more diverse population growing up in the state and then leaving the state, right? Like It would be very interesting to think about a world where Iowa Democrats, for example, were really gung-ho about getting elected to state positions and passing socially liberal legislation because kids growing up in Iowa felt really stifled by the state and didn't feel like it was a place where they could be themselves and were going to, you know, go elsewhere or, you know, other like— North, Where North Carolina Democrats had some kind of similar feeling where like they have all of these liberal college kids and cities where they could in theory be comfortable, but the state's insistence on suppressing city policy has made it so that people feel less comfortable in the state than they otherwise would. Like, again, this is a total, total counterfactual, but it would be interesting to think about that as a political force that is shaping state-based coalitions because it does seem that a similar asymmetry for the right on economic stuff exists for the left on social issues insofar as people who are to disagree with the state on social issues are more likely to move if they're young people who are in a position to move for their adult lives anyway than if they're more socially conservative people who who are less likely to be voting with their feet for that
3: reason.
2: Yeah, i my voice is done, so <laughs> so I'm out of podcast.
3: All right, it's all, all done. Right. We're gonna have to just copy in some some Sarah audio from other shows. <laughs> uh, we'll get some get some get some Medicare takes. Um, awesome. Uh, well, thanks guys. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Tuesday.